Hello, friends. Welcome to the Rattling Good Life podcast. I am your host, Samantha Rose McRae. Thank you for joining me today. Let's get started. Today I have with me Liz Martineau. Liz and I work together through LACDC. However, Liz is over the Ambassador Program. It's a great program in which you learn a lot about Los Alamos and and get the opportunity to learn how to talk to people about the town. Liz has a wealth of knowledge and I hope that one day I can actually tell her story in a different way, her personal story, because today she's not gonna be talking about that. Today, I've asked Liz to come and join us so that she could talk about the story of Los Alamos. So Los Alamos is about a lot more than just the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project. There's a lot more to the history here. There are a lot more stories than just the story of Oppenheimer and Groves. So I asked Liz to come in and tell us a little bit about the times from the Pueblo people up through Los Alamos today. So I hope you enjoy it. And please help me in welcoming Liz Martineau. Feel free to interrupt me if you have a question. Go ahead. So I really believe if we are going to understand the culture of our community, we really need to go back in time. Because people have lived in this area for a thousand years, and each group that has come in has had their own struggles, their own successes, their own failures, and they brought their own values and traditions. And all of those different groups have left a mark or influenced the town that we call Los Alamos today. So we can go way back in time to the ancestral Pueblo people. We know they occupied this area about 800 years ago. And the amazing thing to me is that there are 10,000 ancestral Pueblo sites on the Pajarito Plateau. And that is the greatest concentration of Pueblo sites of anywhere in the United States. And here we are living right in the middle of this. Now, some local Pueblos do not call these ruins. And I love this idea that they accept the status of these ancient sites as is, that they've changed over time and it's just a normal part of their progression. So some local Pueblos do not call them ruins. And I I just think that's an amazing way to think about our world. One of the things that happened when the Spanish came in, so they were here, they were here until about the 1400s and then they moved away probably because of drought. When the Spanish came along in the 1500s, no one was actually living up here. There were no Pueblos up here in Los Alamos. And one of the things that happened is that they granted land ownership to some of the people living in the Pueblos and in the valley, but they did not recognize ancestral sites. You were only granted land ownership for the land that you were actually living on, where your house was located. They didn't recognize hunting grounds or areas of land where that people used only 
places that they were actually occupying. And this is a point of tension, I think still today, because the way different cultures think about land ownership varies. And we're living in a time when you have to have a paper that says you own your land, which is very different from the whole idea of collaborative land ownership. So in about the 1800s, homesteading came along. And homesteading here was very different than the little house on the prairie homesteading that you maybe have heard of. The people here, there were about 36 homesteads on the Pajarillo Plateau. 30 of those were Hispanic people from the valley who came up and farmed seasonally. There were only about six Anglo homesteads up here. And the Hispanic homesteaders had the advantage. They understood the land, they understood the climate, the geography. Their ancestors had been here for hundreds of years. So, and they had a support system. So they often owned homes in the valley and they would come up in the summer to farm, but then they would go back in the winter. And when they were harvesting, they could ask for help from their family. Hey, we're harvesting this weekend, you know, come and help us. So they had an advantage over the Anglos. There were about six Anglo homesteaders who lived here full time and none of them were very successful. And I think it really goes back to, you know, the, the advantage of having your family around. There was one important um, Anglo homesteader up here, and that was H.H. Brooke. And it's important to Los Alamos because he owned the land, which is really downtown Los Alamos right now. He owned the land around Ashley Pond. And he was an innovator. He brought up scientific principles. He rotated his crops. He had one of the first silos in New Mexico. He used modern equipment. He even sold some of his um, lambs to Denver. So he had a large operation, but he still struggled. I wouldn't say he was very successful. He, he bought a lot of property up here but he also worked in other areas. So he worked in um, um, the logging industry to try and raise money to support the farming that is, is what he really loved to do. By the time the ranch school came along, he had almost 800 acres of property. So he was a large landowner up here. But I like to talk about his wife, Cassie, because the women who helped their husbands up here in homesteading don't, aren't usually mentioned very often. They don't get a lot of credit. A lot of times the men are listed as the actual homesteader, but they weren't up here alone. Most of them had families, wives, children who were helping out. Well, H.H. Brooke had Cassie, and I think Cassie is an amazing woman. She was widowed. Her first husband had um, TB. She met him in Santa Fe. And he passed away two months before her son was born. So she was a single mother with a young toddler when she married H.H. H. Brooke. She moved up here to the Pajarito Plateau. 
And I get the feeling she was a real fireball. She, at one time, someone asked if she would spend a night in a cave on a dare. And she agreed. So she went over here, right over here in Los Alamos Canyon, and she took a pistol and a pillow, <laughs> and she spent the night in the cave. And she claims that she was actually more scared of the pistol than she was any of the wild animals in the area. But she was, she was quite, the, quite the person. She is also responsible, I think, for naming Los Alamos. There were some canyons that had the name Los Alamos around here, but she's the one who named their ranch up here, the Los Alamos Ranch. When it was sold, it became the Los Alamos Ranch School and eventually became the town of Los Alamos. So I credit her for being really responsible for naming our town. Um, unfortunately, when they sold out to the Los Alamos Ranch School, she was pregnant with twin daughters, and she was widowed again when H.H. H. Brooke um, passed away. Her daughters by then were about, I think they were about eight years old. So she was widowed twice and had these children. But I, I just think she was bold, resilient, and a, a very hard worker. And that homesteading up here was really a family affair. When the ranch school came along, the ranch school was a very unique school. It was really meant for the wealthy. So people from the East Coast mostly who had money wanted to send their boys off for an education in the West. And they had very traditional schooling in the morning. And then in the afternoon, they did horseback riding. They had hunting, fishing. Um, each boy was given a horse, and it was his responsibility to care for that horse during his time here. If he owned a gun or a dog, he was allowed to bring those to school with him, which is kind of an interesting concept today. But they um, did a lot of outdoor activities. They were associated. They were all part of the Boy Scouts. They were not, it was not a Boy Scout school, but the boys here were also in the Boy Scouts. So they did horseback riding, they worked on trails. Many of the trails that most of us enjoy today were started and built by the Los Alamos Ranch School. So Camp May was one of their ranch outposts where they would ride up to Camp May and spend time camping and hiking up there. Camp Hamilton, the trail that goes down into is that Pueblo Canyon? Um, that, that was built by the Los Alamos Ranch School. So I think a lot of the outdoors that we enjoy today as a community is really due to the Los Alamos Ranch School. They went on, many of those students went on to be very famous people. Um, Gore Vidal was an author. There was um, Sterling Colgate from the famous Colgate Toothpaste family. Someone went on to be the Quaker Oats president, the president of Sears. And John Crosby went on to found the Santa Fe Opera, which is right close by. And he had his start right here at the Los Alamos Ranch School. All the homesteads and the Los Alamos Ranch School were taken over by the government 
1942. And really, the government was looking for a place for a secret project. And General Groves and Robert Oppenheimer had some places in mind that they were looking at. One of the places they considered was Hamas Springs. But if you've been to Hamas Springs, you know it's in a valley. It's a beautiful area, but there are cliffs on both sides. And General Groves just said absolutely no way that it was impossible to defend such an area and that he would not have a secret project located there. But he was lucky that Robert Oppenheimer was with him, and Robert knew the area. He actually had camped over in the Pecos Valley. There was a camp up there that he loved. He spent a lot of time horseback riding, and he would stop at the ranch school and stop at their trading post and pick up supplies when he rode his horse over here in the Hamas Mountains. So he knew the ranch school was here. He never attended the ranch school, but he knew of its existence. So when they decided that Hamas Springs would not work for the secret project, it was Oppenheimer who said, I know of another place. And so he guided General Groves up, taking the back way, kind of past the Bias Caldera up here, to Los Alamos. And when they rode up onto the plateau, I mean, we have the most gorgeous view up here in Los Alamos, I think, that of any place. <laughs> and I think when they saw the view and when they saw the ranch school and the buildings that the ranch school had, including Fuller Lodge, which is an, a very beautiful facility, they said, this is the place. So the ranch school had 54 buildings. Some of those are still here on Bathtub Row, and many of the buildings are gone. But that was a determining factor. They thought that maybe there would be enough buildings, or they'd build a couple more buildings to house the secret project. Didn't quite work out that way because they needed a lot more people than they thought they would need. But anyway, they... They purchased, well, they compensated the people who lived on the property. I I wouldn't say purchased because they were forced to leave. So they were forced to leave. And there was some negotiation with the Los Alamos Ranch School about how much money they would receive. And the ranch school received about $225 per acre. The homesteaders in the area received about seven to $15 per acre. And that was a huge discrepancy. Now, the ranch school did have a lot of buildings, including large buildings like Fuller Lodge, but it still is a, a large difference in the compensation. There was actually a lawsuit and there was uh, the Parito Homesteaders Compensation Fund in, in 2004 donated another $10 million to those families. But it's it continues to be, I think, a sore point that uh, compensation was not um, equal, I guess. So they thought that there would be plenty of room up here for about 30 scientists to work on the project. Ended up, they needed about, by the end of the war, they would need housing for about 6,000 residents. 
So there was a lot, there's been a housing crunch from the very beginning here. It continues today, but the, the housing crunch is a never ending problem for Los Alamos. The project was an interesting project because it was a military post with civilian scientists. So it wasn't a totally military. There was this civilian component to it, which made for interesting conflict and collaboration among the people here. And we also kind of reflected in that were the two leaders of the project. So you had General Groves, who had the project logistics. He was a military man. He believed in rules and security, and he was in charge of making sure the project had all of the supplies that they needed. Then you had J. Robert Oppenheimer. He was the scientific part of the project. He was the civilian. He believed in collaboration and talking to each other and working together. And the two men had very different leadership styles. And while they did clash, they found a way to work together, which I think is an important thing for people to remember. The success of this project really depended on these two men who were very different, had very different ideas um, working together. But they somehow made it happen. Even though the Manhattan Project only lasted two and a half years, it remains an important part of our history and one that you will hear people focus on a lot when they talk about Los Alamos history. A lot of times people, oh, Manhattan Project. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One reason, of course, is because the impact that the Manhattan Project had on the world, the creation of the atomic bomb and the Cold War that came after that are huge um, and very important you know, on a national and international scale. So, of course, the project here is significant. But for Los Alamos, there are some other things that happened because of the Manhattan Project, and we still see some of those effects today. One, of course, is the collaboration. The collaboration that had to happen to create um, the bomb they had to develop new technologies. There were things they didn't know. They had to learn. They had to do experiments. And that required them to work together, not just as physicists, but physicists working with engineers, working with technicians, all working together. So this collaboration started during the Manhattan Project and really continues today. It impacts the way the laboratory operates. It also impacts what happens in town. There's a lot of collaboration that occurs, and I think it goes back to this time period of the Manhattan Project. The isolation that was up here really created this can-do attitude. We didn't have stores. If you wanted something, you had to either go a distance to get it, or you had to figure out how to do it yourself, how to make it work. And that I can make it work, I can do it myself attitude continues today. If you work in any of the nonprofits up here in Los Alamos, you know that finding a volunteer to do it, there's always someone who says, oh, I can, I can do that. <laughs> Whether they have experience or not, they, 
They think they can do it. And that's part of this can-do attitude that's created really by the isolation that we had here at, during the Manhattan Project and even today. If we can't, you know, if we need something, we figure out how to get it done up here. The secrecy and security of the laboratory. Of course, during the Manhattan Project, it was a closed city with a gate and you had to have a pass to get in. And that secrecy and security does continue today at the laboratory. And some of that is necessary, right? It's necessary for our national security. However, I think some of the secrecy of the laboratory spills out into the community. And there are times, there are things we don't talk about here. <laughs> There are things people aren't very open sometimes about their own personal struggles or family issues or problems or even problems that we have as a whole community. Sometimes we keep it secret and we don't want to admit that there are issues. And I think part of that goes back again to that Manhattan Project and even today, the safety and security issues of the laboratory. The other thing that happened during the Manhattan Project was the creative culture. A lot of people look at science and the arts as separate, but the kind of science that we're doing here at the laboratory is a very innovative, creative kind of science. So the people who were up here were extremely creative. And that spilled over into what do you do after work? What do you do in the evenings? How can we keep ourselves entertained? And a lot of that creative culture blossomed during the Manhattan Project. So one of the very first groups, clubs, that was formally organized during in Los Alamos was during the Manhattan Project, and it was the Little Theater Group. They were actually organized in 1943, which the laboratory had only been here for about six months, and they already had a club. <laughs> so they had a club that collected dues. It was an official club, and they performed plays. In 1944, which is about a year later, the big band formed. The Los Alamos Garden Club formed in 1947, and it really bloomed until there were Gosh, I think there were like 80 or more clubs in Los Alamos at one time in the 50s. And it was just people wanted to show their creative side. We have, even today, we have about, I think, I want to say 60 different arts and culture organizations and businesses in town. And you don't, they're kind of hidden because we don't have a huge art center or any anything like that, but they're still functioning, they're still operative, they're still doing concerts and programs and plays and ballet and dancing and all kinds of things happening in Los Alamos, this science community. So uh, let's see then what happened. Oh yes, then after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Los Alamos became an open community. So Bradbury 
um, took over as the laboratory director. And they realized, I think at that time, I mean, uh, Los Alamos was supposed to be a temporary town. They were going to come in here, do this secret project, and then they were going to leave. And actually, even the ranch school thought they might come back and reopen the school. But it turns out it became pretty obvious that um, things were not going to go back to normal. They had a real problem with, you know, creating the atomic bomb. And now what? Now what do we do with all the knowledge and the information? And there were disagreements. And there was now an arms race going on. And so it was... Um, a problem. So there was a huge boom here, housing boom. They decided we needed an actual town. So instead of a military post, uh, people wanted to own their own houses. They didn't want to be assigned a house. They wanted to purchase a house. They wanted shops. They wanted restaurants. <laughs> they wanted a town. They wanted a post office. They didn't even have a post office. And so Bradbury had the very first meeting where they looked at a community master plan. And Los Alamos was a planned community. They looked at housing, where they were going to put houses, how they wanted the streets to be shaped, what kind of houses they wanted, where they wanted to put the community center, which... Um, and all of that was built immediately after the war. So it was a huge boom in construction at that time. And Central Park Square and the post office were both part of the big uh, community center that was built right here in Los Alamos. So it held some stores and a bowling alley and, um, and of course, the post office. The post office is the only building that's, that was part of that structure that really looks authentic to the time period. The rest have been, has been kind of covered with stucco. But um, in 1951, the bridge was built. And in 1953, the laboratory officially moved across the bridge. Of course, they started moving across much earlier than that, but it took... It took years for them to actually build all the buildings they needed for the laboratory. So when, the, when they moved across the bridge, um, that opened up the town for a little bit more development over here. And it also, that's when White Rock started. White Rock really started as a construction camp for the laboratory. When the laboratory decided they were going to move across the bridge, that's a lot of buildings that had to be built. So they needed construction workers, and there was no place for construction workers to live up here. So they actually moved in housing into White Rock, and that was a construction camp. And those houses only stayed for about, I think, six years or so, and then they were gone. They sold them off as surplus, and the land was empty again. White Rock did not come along until a little while later. Um, as I said, housing has always, always, always been a problem here. <laughs> um, but I think when you look at this, this long history of the different people who moved, lived here, you know, from the ancestral 
Pueblo people to the Spanish and the homesteaders and all the work that went in up here and the military post moving in and taking over and then you know turning it over to be a real town has all impacted how we as a community see ourselves some of the problems we face today are the same ones that have been around for a long time and some of them are new one of the things I think is interesting is that the laboratory has really a community of transplants most people were not born here. Most people move here specifically to work at the laboratory. And so we end up with groups of people who were born in different places, sometimes in different parts of the world, different countries, who come here to Los Alamos to make a home. And we as a community have to figure out how to make that work, how to take people who have very different ideas and traditions and opinions and come together to make a community. But I think we've done a pretty good job. How do you think we've done a pretty good job? I think that it is an interesting place to live. You meet people from all over. And because they do bring these traditions, we have a lot of the arts from around the world. So there are different people who have different experiences to share. So I think that's interesting. I do think we still have problems and we still have issues that we need to talk about. And um, sometimes Los Alamos, because we look at ourselves as this really unique, wonderful community, there are things that aren't always so wonderful that we as a community can do a better job. We can do a better job at. One of the things is just um, how we interact with our neighbors, especially people from Espanola. Um, it's, it's always been an interesting issue and it really goes back to the Manhattan Project. I didn't talk about this but the Manhattan Project one of the things it did was brought in money to the region, actual cash. Before the Manhattan Project, New Mexico was doing fine. They were, um, they were farmers, they were traders, they traded with each other. There was um, just a lot of collaboration among the people in northern New Mexico. And then when the Manhattan Project came along, they said, well, if you come up and work for us, and there were a lot of people who came up from the valley and worked as um, maids and construction workers and, and things like that. And if when they came up, they were paid in cash. That's very different than the system that they were used to. Now, all of a sudden, some people had money not everybody had money, but some people had money. And so it created this disparity that we see that continues today. It changed the economy, and the New Mexican economy is never really caught up with the, uh, the difference that the Manhattan Project brought in the laboratory, you know, the, just the difference in wages 
the disparity between the two communities and it's it's always a problem I think um, Liz one of the things that we're talking about um, at the end of some of these storytellings is we talk about what the message is of somebody's life we talk about what the message um, based on Robin Roberts and her mother we say you know um, everybody has something and to make your mess your message and so in your opinion what do you think is the message of Los Alamos and how do the citizens of Los Alamos now carry that um, every day Well, I think Los Alamos has a sense of responsibility um, to keep the country safe. So there is a sense of responsibility that we have here. And I think that impacts people, um, <clears throat> whether you agree with the, the bomb or not, is, is really um, a personal opinion, but there is a responsibility, no matter which way you um, lean on that, that we do have a responsibility as a community for what we've created. Yeah. And I think there's also this sense of collaboration and that, that occurs at the laboratory that, and spills out into the community. And the creative innovation that has actually been around since ancient Pueblo times we have a sense of creativity and innovativeness and innovation that is really a part of this town from all the different eras even the homesteaders that were here were really innovative mm -hmm. so i think that is something that is still here we still feel that creative innovation mm -hmm. here in los alamos do you think we have a sense of responsibility outside of just protection? Well, I think we can use we can use what we've learned and what we know for good. Mm -hmm. So, and I think most people here in Los Alamos feel that what they're doing is important. And they really do have the best intentions, right? Um, some people believe that we have to have the weapons and the bombs um, as a way to keep everyone safe. And some people feel that we shouldn't. But I think bo both groups have at their heart, they really do want to do what's best. Um, they have different ideas of what that looks like and how to do that, but we all have that feeling that we want to do what's best for the world. That's great. Thank so. you, Liz. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate you. I know it's hard to tell the story of an entire town. And I an know. Entire history right? condensed down into just a little tiny podcast episode, but I think you did a great job, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Well, it was fun. It was fun listening about trying to get our history into a tiny nutshell. Yeah. There's so much more. There's so much more to talk about um, that we as a town should talk about. Yeah. But 
at least hopefully you can see that it's it's all related. Mm -hmm. These things happened and they built upon each other and none of those eras is separate from another era. We as a community have grown together. It's not just one group of people.